and welcome to Edie's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, which is a circular economy special. Upcircle Beauty's co-founder, Anna Brightman, walks us through the practicalities of making beauty products from used coffee grounds. Allbirds Director of Materials Innovation, Ramesh Patel, explains why material experts, designers and procurement teams need to collaborate with sustainability leaders. And we ask Cisco's Director of Circular Economy, Katie Schindel, how we can close the loop on the technologies we use every day at the office. Yes, hello, and a very warm welcome to this episode of Sustainable Business Covered, hosted as part of ED's Circular Economy Week 2022. You are listening to the voice of ED's senior reporter, Sarah George, and I'm joined virtually by ED's content editor, Matt Mace. Good morning, Matt. How are we doing? Yes, very well. Thank you. It's been a pretty hectic uh, week. I'm like both energised and tired, if that makes sense. The kind of discussions and the, the pieces we've been doing have been really kind of insightful and, and optimistic, but, but there's been a lot on from an admin side. So, yeah, it's a, it's a weird combination of, of tired and 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 optimistic yeah definitely and yeah same for me I feel like we always say this when we do a focus week um that it is a lot but ultimately it's nice to spend a week thinking about one thing and doing some yeah a big broad range of stuff around that um unlike yourself however I'm aware that you've been nursing physical injury this week yes yeah I have rather embarrassingly hurt my ribs quite badly um they're they're black and blue uh, pretty much down the left side. He uh, tripped and fell on a run last week um, <laughs> into like, I don't even know what they're called, um, but like when you get, when you run, when you walk for a twin and you usually have like the two metal gates that kind of pass each other, you have to weave through. So I slipped in the rain and fell onto one of them and uh, I even just laughing hurts. Um, <laughs> so I've been trying to trying to keep away from, from light-hearted conversations <laughs> this week. Oh no, I, I could say that that could be easy to do given the global news cycle um, at, at the moment. But yes, hoping you're feeling better um, soon and off painkillers so that we can actually see each other in person. Yes, the plan, um, yeah. Yeah, um, but enough of embarrassing Matt. As I've mentioned, it's been Circular Economy Week here at ED from Monday the 23rd of May to Friday the 27th of May, which is today. So as well as keeping an eye on what's going on in Davos this week and keeping an eye on the new windfall tax on oil and gas here in the UK, we've been dedicating all of our exclusive content to supporting our readers in accelerating the transition to a circular economy. The circular economy, of course, being a system where we take fewer natural resources, use them better, use them for longer and make sure they get reused and recycled where we're done. Um, so in a circular economy, rapid cycles of take, make and dispose are gone. Um, as Matt's mentioned, it's been a very busy week. We hosted a roundtable discussion in London on single-use plastics. We chaired a full afternoon of inspiration sessions webinars. More on this later in this episode. Um, we've conducted video interviews with the likes of Circle Economy, ReLondon and BSI. Um, and we've also got blogs on our site from Zero Waste Scotland and Circle Economy. And yeah, much more um, besides. So lots going on this week and I hope that this podcast can bring it all together as we approach 
um, the weekend. So before we get into it, Matt, do you have any key takeaways from yeah the interviews and events you've been at this week? I think I think my my general understanding of it was, and and this I, I ask this question to everyone, and it comes from uh, my preconceptions as a as a journalist who has back in 2018 when the kind of blue planet effect happened. Um, all we seemed to write about every week was plastics, and they were always the most read on the site. And the circular economy, as a trickle-down effect from that, really picked up steam. We were writing a lot about take-back schemes, that kind of stuff. Then the pandemic happened, and a lot of those consumer-facing initiatives obviously fell off. We weren't getting updates about them because they just couldn't happen. And then as the lockdown kind of eased, the green recovery emerged, and net zero became this kind of huge momentum um, this kind of drumbeat for climate action all the way through to COP. And my feeling was that circular economy had fallen down, certainly the agenda of what brands wanted to talk about, not necessarily what they were doing. Um, but it's been refreshing to learn this week that actually um, momentum on circular economy hasn't slowed just because momentum on net zero has picked up. If anything, a lot of businesses are now starting to understand the the synergies between the two, how, how circular economy can assist with net zero and um, and that there's been a lot of just, you know, stuff happening in the background, a lot of brands just getting um, stuff in place to actually be able to to launch um, new initiatives. We, we saw on the online events yesterday, you know, miles of their flexible uh, packaging recycling scheme, Pona Ricard with their kind of paper bottle prototypes that they're working on as um, well. So it was kind of refreshing to, to learn that the circular economy hasn't kind of fallen by the wayside because net zero has been such a dominant movement um, and now the, the trick is kind of harnessing what has been happening in the background and, and now taking consumers on the journey I think the the phrase that, that will stick with me is learning how to talk about the circular economy without talking about the circular economy because it can kind of get people to go a bit glossy eyed it's a weird term and makes sense in principle but you just got to make it really simple to understand and actionable in everyday situations. Yeah, of course. And that's what we're going to be going through in in this this podcast. And yeah, much of that is what I learned this week as as well. In talking to ReLondon, um, we learned that while we might not have seen as much um circular stuff facing us as consumers during the pandemic, there'll have been problems with water bottle refill, coffee cup reuse, um, all manner of other services besides um, investment in this space hasn't gone away um, and things have been bubbling along under the the surface. So lots of inspiration um, throughout this week as well. Lots of great case studies just starting to bloom. So to bring all of this together as we approach the weekend, we're going to do what Matt said and make this really accessible and easy to understand from a consumer point of view. So I'm going to invite you, Matt, and you listeners to imagine we are undertaking a more circular morning routine. So you wake up, you take a shower, you wash your face with a cleanser that is made of upcycled byproducts from the food industry. And it smells of lovely things like apricots and coffee because that's what's in it. Um, and you get dressed, you put on your trainers and they are designed to have a low carbon footprint across their life cycle. They're made of fossil free bio based materials. And then we're ready to head to the office, presumably on a bike that we bought second hand um, or if you're not a cyclist in a car share. And you log into some equipment that, you know, has been refurbished and remanufactured and that will be taken back once again once your company is done. So that sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> Um, so let's get into this virtual day, starting with upcycled skincare from UpCircle. 
UpCircle is an SME based in London that was co-founded by siblings William and Anna Brightman in 2016. It's widely regarded as the brand responsible for the boom in use of byproducts from the food and drink industry in the beauty industry. All UpCircle formulas are vegan and cruelty free and crucially for what we're talking about today, made using ingredients that would have otherwise ended up as waste. And regarding packaging waste, they're housed in a packaging portfolio that's 99% plastic free with return and refill options widely available. And having a cheeky peek at Anna's uh, LinkedIn ahead of this call, um, she describes her brand as pioneering and regenerative by design. So Anna sat down with me earlier this week to explain what all of that means and how it can be achieved in practice and delivered in yeah, a pot of face scrub. So let's play that interview with Anna in full. Yes, hello, Anna. Thank you very much for taking the time to come on our Circular Economy Week um, podcast this this morning. How are you and whereabouts are you dialing in from today? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Uh, bright and early Monday morning and I am in our office, which is in Westminster in London, just by the river. Great. Well, thank you for taking the time to dial in um, virtually. I appreciate this is probably a topic that you talk about all the time, hence the name um, of of the brand. And I'm very aware of UpCircle my, myself. We were talking off call about how I've actually got um, one of the face masks sat in my cupboard. So when you emailed me, I was like, oh, um, I know her <laughs> in a way. Um, but for those who are listening and haven't heard of UpCircle Beauty, could we could we get a brief introduction um, and some insight as to why you and I understand you and your brother set this up. It would be great to hear about how that came about and why you felt compelled to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I launched UpCircle with my brother Will back in 2016. And uh, I think, to be honest, we were both in careers that we weren't loving uh, and in our early 20s. Uh, sort of felt like, OK, well, we're already doing pretty well in those these careers, but is this really what we want forever? And uh, ultimately, the answer was no. We didn't want to be a tiny cog in a massive machine. And we wanted a job where we would feel positive about the impact that we were having when we came home at the end of the day. And so we were both kind of looking for inspiration of what kind of idea might spark a great business. And uh, that moment of inspiration happened when my brother walked into a coffee shop and asked the barista what happens to the coffee grounds that they tap out into a bin uh, when they make every single cup of coffee. And when the guy told him that they actually produce so much and this was just an independent coffee shop that they have to pay the local council to dispose of the coffee grounds at landfill, uh, all of a sudden we had our problem uh, that we wanted to kind of have our business or our product be the solution for. And that's where I came in. Throughout my teenage years, I wanted to be a makeup artist, so I had a keen interest in skincare products and cosmetics, and I knew that, particularly out in Australia, coffee in skincare was a huge thing and, and had fantastic skincare benefits. So I said, well, why don't we just start collecting up coffee from cafes and bars and restaurants? It'll be a win-win situation. We'll be getting a core ingredient, and they'll be saving the cost of having to have it disposed by the council and uh, and start making kind of natural exfoliators out of them. This was also at that time, not long after the microbead scandal, where everyone was waking up to the reality that a lot of toothpastes and exfoliators had these tiny little plastic beads in them, which are just getting flushed into the oceans and never, never to be taken back out again. So the kind of uh, setting seemed like the right time and absolutely no other brand uh, seemed to be prioritising the circular economy and the beauty industry. So that's kind of where it all began. 
super interesting and obviously it's not just the case that there's a few coffee grounds from one independent store um now there's a whole range of products with lots of different um upcycled natural ingredients and obviously back in 2016 i remember that time in plastics very well we were sort of on the cusp of blue planet um weren't we and things were about to explode in terms of interest in um plastic free and tackling plastic um, pollution. So it'd be great to hear about how the brand has has grown since since that beginning back in 2016. Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, we started out with coffee grounds. So uh, we we were collecting from one coffee shop, and now we collect from hundreds of coffee shops around uh, the city where we're based, which is London. But we've diversified our upcycled ingredient portfolio a lot since then. So we now work with about 15 different upcycled ingredients, everything from argan shell powder which is a byproduct of the argan oil industry to brewed chai spices that are left over from making chai syrups to uh, residual fruit waters which are a byproduct of the juicing industry which we use in products that have a higher water content etc so the, the possibilities there really are endless as you've mentioned one of the shortfalls in the beauty industry is the reliance on plastic in the packaging that's something that we've always been really careful to minimise as much as we possibly can. For example, our range at the moment is 99% plastic free and we offer plastic free refills for the 1%. However, uh, with cosmetics and skincare generally, a lot of the pieces of the packaging are very, very small and therefore quite difficult to recycle. But also those pieces of packaging are necessary for the effective use of the product. So, for example, with a serum or a face oil, uh, most people would want a pipette or a dropper in order to apply it appropriately to the face or with a toner or a facial mist of any description, you're going to want a sort of spray function, which at present there really isn't an alternative for other than plastic. So some of the ways that us as a brand have uh, kind of worked around that is firstly, we have a full packaging return scheme. So when our customers finish their products at home, they can keep their empty jars, give them a quick rinse. Uh, return them to us free of charge and then we will refill them as part of our refill scheme and send their exact same packaging to them and then the other thing that we've done in more recent times is become plastic negative certified now what that means is that we pay the wages of waste workers working out in india to remove uh, multi-layered plastic which is known as mlp which is non-recyclable from within 10 kilometers of the coastline and we fund that to the point where we are actively removing twice the amount of plastic that we as a brand produce be it through either our direct plastic usage, i.e. the little elements of our packaging, or our indirect plastic, which would mean things like when we receive a pallet to our warehouse and it's been shrink-wrapped in in pallet wrap. So um, these are some of the things that I think brands could certainly do more of in order to tackle the plastic issue in a challenging industry. Um, But there's certainly a lot lot more uh, that can be done. Of course, and I did want to talk about the practicalities of some of these things like Um, Refill, we know from research from bodies like the Ellen MacArthur Foundation that there's growing interest in this from big brands, but often it is the practicalities. So in-store refill, for example, can people, um, will products be wasted? Um, What about the cleaning of the store and things like COVID have made that difficult? Um, And then with reverse logistics, that sounds like, um, yeah, a big project in and of its of itself, especially for a small brand. So I'd love to hear about some of the practicalities um, that Upcircle had to consider in doing things like, as you mentioned, um, packaging return for recycling and refill. Yeah, it's it's uh, safe to say it's not easy. Um, so we're now six years old as a brand and having a 
circular approach to packaging is just as important as having a circular approach to ingredients for a brand that is entirely designed around the circular economy concept. And yet we were only able to launch our full packaging return scheme in uh, April on Earth Day last year. So it took us like four years basically to build the infrastructure that we needed to get the manpower behind the scenes to make that dream a reality. So it's certainly not something that can happen overnight. And as you've mentioned, for small brands, it, it really is something that, you know, you have to put an awful lot of time and resources into. Um, what, one of the things that we did is we looked at loads of other brands who advertise themselves as having refill schemes and we tried them out. You know, we'd purchase a product and we'd go through the process and we just tried to iron out all of the bumps in the road or the things that we didn't think make make that a uh, a kind of flawless uh, situation or experience for the customer and and then fix that within our own scheme um but it, it it's meant that we have had to have we've got people behind the scenes who solely do our refill scheme uh, we have to look at lots of different sterilization methods so in the end we ended up with dry heat sterilization but there are still issues that we iron out um every day and and, and that will always continue the scheme is also growing month on month there's not one month that goes by where there aren't more people using the scheme than the than the month before. So, again, fortunately, that's a gradual growth, um, but it's something that we're going to continue to have to work carefully on as we scale it. Uh, but it's also we do, you know, end of year surveys and things like that. And it's the thing that we're most widely praised for. And now within the industry, we're, we're known as having one of the best refill schemes out there. But I think you have to make it as appealing for the customer. So, for example, we, we offer ours at a 20% discount to our normal prices. And then you also don't want to cannibalize your sales through independent stockists. So we started offering that our independent stockists can do their own refill scheme. So we started selling our products to them in bulk, um, et cetera. So there's an awful lot to consider, but I would certainly say that it's worth it. And in terms of the brand integrity and loyalty of customers and things like that, it's been one of the best things that we've done. It just took a while <laughs> to make the dream a reality. And I, I wanted to dive into as well the the supply chain and the practicalities of of the ingredients because mm. it's it's a very different thing I'd imagine than to collect coffee grounds from one shop um, to set up as you mentioned a network of dozens of coffee shops across the city um, and then to get byproducts from industries that maybe I, I'm assuming argan oil is isn't a big thing in in London. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. for, for, processing so it'd be good to hear about your journey um to to scaling these supply chains for upcycled ingredients for for these formulas yeah it's a great question i think that as you've mentioned the most complicated out of all of the ingredients that we work with is the coffee and that's the very first one that we started working with and i think there's a reason that we're the only brand who are upcycling coffee grounds into skincare products at scale because it's not been an easy road. The other ingredients are much easier. So argan, as you've mentioned, it's sourced from Morocco. Um, we do go to, we don't sort of try and force the ingredients to grow in climates where they wouldn't naturally, just so that we can say that all of our ingredients are grown in London, because or England, obviously London would be even more ridiculous. Um, we, we do source the ingredients from all over the world, uh, but I think that that is the more responsible thing to do than, you know, creating... Uh, environments and climates within countries that, that don't naturally suit the growth of those plants just to say that they were grown locally. Um, but with, with most of the other byproducts, we source them from one location. So, for example, we're now working with upcycled flower petals 
and we're partnered with the UK's biggest uh, flower supplier to like supermarkets. And so every week, anything that's not sold, uh, they send us in one batch. So that comes to us in one and then we process it. Same with the chai that we use in our soap bars. That's sourced from one uh, Bath-based family-run company who we met at a trade show. And they send us all of their kind of that, that ingredient in one batch and then we process it. The coffee is much more complicated because it's coming from hundreds of different places. So we have to be very fresh and very efficient on that. And we have gradually built that as well, like the refill scheme. It didn't go from sort of one shop to 100 shops overnight. But as the brand grew and more and more people were buying our products, we approached more and more coffee shops and we just built them out uh, based on a geographical location, as well as, of course, their ethics and the quality of the coffee itself. So um, we started out in Hackney which is where we had a, a tiny little office room that we were working from at the time. And then COVID hit, which was a, incredibly challenging for that ingredient in particular, because all of the coffee shops closed for like a minimum of six months. So then we started, we basically completely started our collection priorities from scratch, um, looking more towards large green spaces and residential areas. So we moved to South London, um, places like, Clapham or Dulwich, uh, places that had large greens, basically. Um, but th that was a, a clear example of having to really think outside the box in order to navigate the unique supply chain issues that a brand like ours has. And it can't be denied that, you know, we, we haven't necessarily chosen the easiest <laughs> business model, but it's a labour of love and, and the products that we produce are truly unique and have unique provenance and, you know, they're special. And I think that's what keeps people coming back to us. Um, and we're, we're, you know, restlessly determined to show that it can be done. And I think at this point, six years in, uh, we have successfully scaled it. We're sold in more than 40 different countries, selling hundreds and thousands of these products per year. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not easy, but I definitely have to don that entrepreneurial cap and sort of think outside the box when things like a global pandemic strike. <laughs> Of course. And you say that that's a difficult supply chain, but I don't know if there's such thing as an easy supply chain to pivot true, true. Um, in a pandemic. I'm I'm thinking of the, the Suez Canal blockage as well oh, and how God. everyone was panicking about that. I'm thinking as well about the chip shortage yeah. um, and how now even the machines that make the chips, their chips are old and can't be replaced. So, yeah, yeah I imagine it's... that any and all supply chains um, can can require a lot of work. And it's certainly not over either. I think, you know, we're, we're continuing to face the the challenges uh, that have come off the back of all of what's been going on in the world. And it really is a global supply chain crisis at the moment. Um, we've had, you know, we use frosted glass, which is Pantone matched to our brand colours. Um, because there are so few suppliers, we've had to sacrifice a key part of our branding and go back to clear glass jars with uh, just printed labels on them. And that's just in order to keep our products in stock. So sadly, you know, these sacrifices are still having to be made. But uh, yeah, at least it's a, an issue that everyone's facing together. <laughs> I think customers understand it's not the easiest time in the world for, for supply chain generally. Of course. And and I did want to talk about the customer engagement piece. You've mentioned about how, how much you've got great feedback um, on the refill and people love that aspect and the recycling um, take back and I'd, I'd say that now compared to 2016 a lot more people are looking for circular packaging and for vegan formulas like the formulas that UpCircle um, uses but I wanted to know where, whether it was challenging in the first instance to communicate up, 
upcycled ingredients made using um, food, food and drink. So to say to people, oh, this is used coffee grounds, um, please put them on your face, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, it is. It's it was probably our biggest concern when we started, because obviously we're trying to launch these products in the beauty industry, which is arguably quite shallow or fickle. Uh, and so that was a, it was a, it was a key concern that, you know, we didn't want people to associate these ingredients, which, as we've mentioned, we are asking them to put on their face as being unclean or old or in any way of lesser value than fresh ingredients. And ultimately, that's down to us as a brand to to kind of figure out. So we're very careful with the words that we use. We never use the word waste, for example, um, or old. <laughs> uh, and, and we just have to communicate the storyline very effectively. And we do that by trying to be as transparent as possible. So when it comes to the coffee, for example, an easy an easy example to give, um, it's, it's demonstrating that these collections are happening every single day and that the products are produced the very next day by us. It's not like coffee shops and cafes are saving up weeks and months of coffee, which is obviously both warm and wet. <laughs> so rife for mould, like it just obviously wouldn't work. Um, so we've figured all of those things out and then it's just making sure that we communicate that. Of course, to sell a skincare product, you have to go through the exact same testing process as any other brand and every single one of our products has passed that so you've got efficacy testing stability testing for example and so you know if there the were you know bacteria or something like that growing in our products then of course we would not have passed those tests and we wouldn't be able to sell them um, but actually it's, it's down to us as a brand to communicate the, the fact that these ingredients are just as good as others and we do that also through continuing to show things like before and after photos and testimonials of customers proving that not only do we have a fantastic brand concept and fantastic branding, um, but also that our products work and, and they kind of uh, meet their match with any other product out there on the market in terms of the performance. Of course. And do you think that it might be easier now? We always see polls about how sustainability has rocketed up the agenda. People now expect this um, from brands. So do you find that that, that sort of um, groundswell of interest might have made the communication um, slightly different than it would have been in, in 2016. Yes, absolutely. Even in the relatively short time that we've existed as a brand, all you need to do is look at mainstream advertising from some of these brands that have been around for 20, 30, 40 plus years and see the different things that they're prioritising in the ads that you see on television every single day. And it started out with vegan, uh, cruelty-free, things like that. And then the shift comes more broadly to um, things, as you've mentioned, like broader eco initiatives and circularity and, and minimising waste, etc. And so when that's happening, of course, it's led by smaller brands like us. Um, but then when the bigger brands realise that that's what's actually desired by consumers these days, um, then it makes actually our lives easier because uh, people are already ready and willing to listen to it. You don't have to kind of have any form of persuasion. Um, so there's been a, a massive shift in that. And we're seeing more and more brands start to incorporate byproduct ingredients into their formulations and attempt some form of uh, circular packaging as well, which, of course, we welcome. Um, we, we don't want to be the only people doing this. We think it's important that everyone realises that this is the only way forward and that actually, you know, we have to make use of things that are already in existence rather than continuing to produce more and more and more, because in reality, that's just not something we can continue to do. Thank you, Anna, once again for taking the time to kickstart our guest speakers for today's podcast. 
Right, so firmly back to our circular morning routine, Matt. We've freshened up and gotten dressed and now it's time for shoes. Um, but before we lace them up, I'm afraid I do have some trivia to spring upon you. Um, Matt, how many pairs of shoes do you think get manufactured globally every year, um, considering that we're now approaching a global population of about 7.9 billion? Um, how many pairs of shoes I can get manufactured every year? Yeah. 7.9 billion population. Oh, like 2.5 billion. Oh, way out. There's, it's 10 times that amount. Um, it's actually between 20 billion and 21 billion every year. So that's three brand new pairs for each person, almost. Um, presumably more than that if we're going to get technical and exclude the babies that don't need shoes because they're not walking yet. Um, so that is a lot of shoes. Um, and unfortunately, most of them yeah, don't get reused or recycled. So trivia question number two on shoes is what do you think the recycling rate is? 9%. Again, you're so optimistic. It's only 5%. Um, and most of the other 95% get landfilled or burned um, or else they're sitting in storage. And the reason that so many end up in landfill or incineration, um, most shoes are notoriously hard to recycle. Um, they're made of mixed materials, mostly fossil based materials held together with chemical glues that are hard to separate from that um, as well. This makes for, you mentioned, Matt, the, the sort of disconnect between how we think about net zero and how about we think about resources. Um, but because of how uncircular it is, the shoe value chain is actually responsible for 1.4% of global annual um, emissions, not, not just because we're shipping, um, but partly because shoes are made with fossil-based materials and they are ultimately going to sit in a landfill emitting or be burnt, also emitting. Lots of brands are now innovating to change the value chain for shoes, and one of them is Allbirds. Earlier this month, the Allbirds team were in London for the launch of their new Tree Flyer running shoes. Um, and Matt, this is maybe an event you should have gone to because they did actually encourage running. That wasn't my vibe. Um, I was there in my jeans. Maybe if you'd gone on that run, you'd have been too tired to go on the fateful run <laughs> in which you what sustained could have been? your injury. What could have been? Yeah, so really, really should have been yourself, but it was me on the day, um, me and my jeans, I'm prepared to run. Um, but I wasn't there for running, I was there to learn about the circular economy and on hand at the event to explain why the tree flyer is innovative in terms of low carbon materials and circular design was the brand director of materials innovation, Ramesh Patel. And of course, considering that the circular economy is just that, it's an economy and a system, not just an innovative material. He also walked us through how materials, design, procurement and sustainability teams can better collaborate. So put on your running shoes and head over to Covent Garden because we're chatting to Ramesh in the Allbirds store now. Yes, thank you so much for having me along to the Allbirds Covent Garden store this morning, R Ramesh. Um, and thank you for taking time out of your visit. I'm aware that it is quite a brief flying visit um, to London for yourself. Yes, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm only on the ground for 48 hours and uh, I'm happy to spend some time with you. Well, thank you so much for, for sparing it. And we're here today for the launch, um, preview launch, sorry, of the tree flyer a new innovative shoe with great material innovation low carbon innovation circular economy 
innovation. Let's take count how many times I say innovation in this episode. Um, <laughs> as well as me. Yeah. yeah. Um, but before we get into the shoe itself, it would be great to start with an introduction to yourself and what your role as Director of Materials Innovation with Allbirds entails. Sure. Yeah, so uh, I've been at Allbirds about three and a half years, uh, worked uh, as the Director of Materials Innovation. Uh, my role, uh, you know, in the most simplistic way would be to see everything that goes on under the foot. So the insole foam, the midsole, and the rubber has been my domain uh, for some time. Uh, the sourcing of the raw materials to make sure they perform really well and they are sourced sustainably and, and, and manufactured as such. Uh, that's been my domain. So, but I have dabbled in uppers in the past as well. Mm. And I think a lot of people listening will, will probably be aware that, as we say, there's more than 20 billion pairs of shoes being made over the world um, each Correct. year. Now, most of them having an unsustainable part that you mentioned, the part under the foot will probably contain fossil um, fuel-based materials that are yeah. high carbon and hard to recycle, glues that are hard to recycle. Yeah. Um, so, so how does the design of this new shoe, the Tree Flyer, change that? Yeah, so we're very excited to bring to the world uh, our new platform technology called Swift Foam and it's and its application in the Tree Flyer. The Tree Flyer is the first shoe that, that uh, we launched this, this new platform with. Uh, what Swift Foam is, is, uh, is, is the way I like to think about it, it's equal parts material innovation and process innovation. Uh, on the material side, we've taken uh, castor beans and made uh, a resin that, that, that functions really well. It's a lighter, bouncier foam, not because uh, for some other reasons, but because we're using castor beans as the main raw material. It actually has mm -hmm. a performance benefit and has a lower carbon footprint than its petroleum-based equivalent. Uh, on the manufacturing size, uh, side, we've been able to uh, work on this process, this new innovative process that uh, actually reduces uh, a multi-step, wasteful, high-intensity uh, production process and shrinks it down to a single step with very little waste and very little uh, energy used. Mm, and I think we were talking downstairs about how while there's a little bit of waste, it's actually close to zero waste because that can be repurposed for a component on the heel, is that right? Correct. That's in fact, the, the tree fire is our first demonstration of that, that all the waste that we generated, not just uh, during the production of the, of the midsole, but all the waste we actually generated during the development of the midsole, which amounted to you know, hundreds of different iterations on designs and raw material, you know, fine-tuning the, the formulations. All of that waste uh, was completely repurposed, melted and repurposed to make the heel counter for the flyer. So between the heel between the midsole, a high performance midsole, and a very supportive heel counter, we're accounting to close to zero waste. That's that's fascinating. And something else that fascinates me is just seeing in the store the the vial of beans and then the resin, um, and then the actual right. um, and then the actual parts for the shoe fully formed fully foamed. Mm -hmm. um, so for someone like me that probably doesn't specialize in materials innovation, how do we get from bean um, to shoe component and, and where are the beans sourced from? Yeah, so uh, glad you asked this. The beans are actually sourced from uh, from the state of Gujarat uh, in India. Uh, they're uh, sourced through this initiative called the Pragati Initiative that actually uh, helps the farmers uh, get fair wages for their for their work and fair prices for their castor beans and actually promotes uh, very beneficial uh, uh, things like educational services for their children. Uh, so it actually uplifts the entire community that's harvesting these castor beans. 
these beans are then taken to uh, uh, to France, uh, to Arkema, which is one of our partner uh, companies, and uh, they're specialized in extracting the oils from it and polymerizing them into resins that go into our our foams. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to take a look at time frame as well, because I think it's been mentioned that it, it's taken years um, to do this. And often when we write about circular economy um, solutions, um, very environmentally minded consumers will say like, oh, can't you launch it sooner? Why sure. is there this sure. time frame? Why are we still making things yeah. like that? So it'd be good to hear about, yeah, the process of bringing this from early stages sure. to now. Yeah, the process, uh, it, it took, uh, you know, the, the entire process to to go from initial concepts or even ideas to a final one shoe that we can say now we're ready for production. So that journey of developing the shoe and testing it and retesting it, that took us uh, about two years, a little bit over two years. Uh, all in all, it's taken up uh, the whole company about three years to go from uh, you know, initial ideas to putting it in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a, if you think about it, that's actually a very short amount of time if you consider what we've achieved with this shoe, which is a brand new process, maybe our best running shoe ever. In fact, yes, it is our best running shoe ever. And we've done it with a brand new raw material. So if you consider all of that, the sum of all of that, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a massive accomplishment for, for the entire team. Mm, I can imagine, and that energy is very powerful here today. Um, and I want to talk about, there'll probably be people listening that think, okay, great, it has um, a swift foam component, but what about the other materials? So it'd be great to hear about some of the other materials innovations you've been working on at Allbirds. So I'm aware of uh, sweet foam, another bio-based foam, yeah. um, and then also the work that's been doing with um, yeah recycled, regenerative, sustainably sourced upper materials as well. So it'd be great to hear about the other components. Sure, yeah. Uh, so uh, yes, you know, uh, the big hero in this shoe obviously is swift foam. Uh, and then, of course, uh, by by association, the heel counter. But uh, let's start from the bottom. So the we have a full uh, coverage uh, rubber, natural rubber outsole. The natural rubber is uh, harvested or and sourced uh, through the FSC. It's an FSC certified natural rubber. Uh, what that means that that the harvesting of that rubber does not contribute to deforestation. Uh, so that's important to us. And you work our way up the insole, which is a, I think it's a nice Easter egg. Uh, is that uh, on the shoe? Is that uh, this is the first time we've actually made an insole out of sweet foam, which is uh, our other foam that, that, that uses sugarcane. Uh, the reason for that was that it's actually half the weight. It, it, it boosts performance and, and reduces weight, which is great. But actually ended up being even a lower carbon footprint as well mm -hmm. uh, compared to our traditional insoles. Um, and we, as we work up, uh, our tree fiber is made out of uh, eucalyptus tree. Again, FSC certified, not promoting deforestation. Um, and that's the majority component in that upper. It's actually lightweight, breathable upper that performs really well, and, and uh, it does all the job that you know a synthetic fiber of an equivalent uh, size would do. Mm. And obviously, we're now at a point where there's yeah enough swift foam that we can um, yeah preview the tree flies today and launch them um, th this year. But is there a timeline for further scaling that up at this point, or is is that? Yeah, we're, we're looking into into different applications, but I will say I think we're just barely scratching the surface with with this new uh, new process and this new technology, mm. uh, and and we're we're excited for what's coming in the future. Mm. 
Thank you. And then I wanted to close out by taking a, a broader look at, at Allbirds circular economy um, work, because when I look at fashion, sometimes we can hear some great materials innovation um, work, but then, as you've said, process is equally important. Yeah. Uh, um, it's not great if you have a low impact material or recycled material that takes a lot of energy and carbon to make. Mm -hmm. And then there's also things to do with like the longevity, the, ser the service correct. that goes with the shoe, it's no good having a material that's sustainably sourced and low carbon if it doesn't last a long, yeah. a long time and you don't have the right service and system. So, um, so I wanted to get a feel for how you work with maybe the the design team and people that are looking at things like services and and end of life to make sure that that it's sustainable across its life cycle. That's uh, it's a great question because uh, I, I think uh, so. I, let me start with the with the tree flyer that uh, it's our first shoe where the carbon footprint of the shoe is labeled. Uh, on the back side as an external element, it's like a design element. And this shoe has a carbon footprint of 9.92 uh, kilograms of CO2. What does that even mean? Well, the way we've calculated the carbon footprint is that we've taken into account the entire process where it goes from raw materials to putting it in store, and even uh, we go beyond that, it's like, hey, if a, if a customer wears a shoe and, and washes them in the washing machine, mm -hmm. we're accounting for a little bit of light, uh, uh, in a use of that. Uh, as well as what happens to it when it goes to landfill. So all of that is encapsulated in that carbon footprint of 9.92. Uh, the other three, so we've talked about uh, the life of, of the, the wear of the shoe and the end of life of the shoe. The other big three components, which are actually comprise of the majority of that number, are materials, which is what we've talked a lot about today, uh, process, which is another one that we've sort of dabbled in a little bit, and that's sort of becoming an area of focus. And the last one being uh, transportation, so moving, you know, putting it in ships and moving it around the world, that uh, amounts to some carbon footprint. Obviously, I only handle one portion of it, which is materials, but I work closely with our sustainability team and our design teams to make sure that uh, overall, through, you know, through iterations, that we're able to reduce the, the that number. Um, 9.92 right now is is. I think it's a fantastic number to start with. It, it it beats many of the shoes in the market, but eventually our goal is to get to zero. A, a big goal. It is <laughs> a big goal. Um, and yeah, I know you'll be busy working towards that. I also know that you'll be heading out of London very shortly. I'm aware I've kept you for long enough, oh, Ramesh. So fine. thank you so very appreciate it. so much. Um, maybe I'll go home and dream about yeah, castor beans. Uh, <laughs> I, I hope not. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. A big thank you once again to Ramesh and to the Allbirds team for having us along to the store. So at this point in our routine, we're washed, we're suited and booted, we're running shoed rather than booted, and we've kept our routine circular so far. Um, and now on this virtual journey, we are heading into the office. Join Matt and I after the jingle for a discussion with Cisco's Director of the Circular Economy, Katie Schindel who helps us imagine a world without waste for the technologies we use at work every day. Hello and welcome back to the second and final part of this episode of ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast, a special to mark our Circular Economy Week 2022. I'm Edie's senior reporter, Sarah George. My co-presenter is Edie's content editor, Matt Mace, and we're walking our lovely listeners through a circular morning routine. 
we're now at the office and personally I think when we think of a circular economy in the office we often think of the recycling bins for our packaging and the water fountains um, definitely something that used to get brought up a lot in yeah that 2018 time Matt when you said you were writing about Blue Planet all the time. Yeah absolutely the office is like a, <clears throat> just a, a nightmare to navigate in terms of, of embracing the circular economy and to the point where um, we we've had in, we had in, I was involved in some discussions internally at Faversham House about kind of greening the office and and recycling was a big part of that. You know you've got essentially for some offices you may only have one recycling bin that's located in kind of the kitchen or whatnot, but most people are sitting at their desks throwing stuff in their little kind of uh, smaller bins and then there's collection aspects and and then you're still at the kind of mercy of the waste authorities then and how they collect it some. Some councils, you know, they would take office waste and even if it's badged, you know, you've got a separate bag for recyclable and a separate bag for 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 kind of lamp set for landfill or energy from waste or whatever, they'll just chuck that all in the same lorry and off they go. So it's it's can be um it can be a real um labyrinth to to navigate, even if you're going with the best intentions, you might be inadvertently contributing to, to the issues at hand. So yeah, I feel like this could be a separate podcast in its in its own right. How we deal with yeah behaviour change and systems mm-hmm. um, at the offices for packaging, um, and obviously this is super important. None of us want to be responsible for plastics and packaging leaking into nature, especially when you say we think we're doing the right thing. Um, but when we get down to it, the lifeblood of an office is really the the furniture and the technologies as well. And while we might not get rid of these things as often, they do have a big environmental impact if we don't circulate them properly. Um, so I'm going to spring some more trivia on you, Matt, about office technologies. We already know from the UN's Global E-Waste Monitor that e-waste is the world's fastest growing domestic waste stream. Um, but the UN found that how much electronic and electrical waste was produced in the UK per person, per know. person. And you'd think we're maybe doing all right with this, but we are pretty low down on on the list. I'm happy to accept kilograms or, or pounds. OK, I was about to say, I don't know the uh, I don't know the, the metrics to use. Kilograms of electronic waste per person yeah. in the UK. Um. 50. 50. <laughs> I don't know what a kilogram is to be honest. I don't know what that would what that would feel like in, in, in terms of a pile of electronics. So runner, not a lifter. Um so it's actually twenty-three point nine kilograms per person. So for you that might be a pleasant surprise. For me, that was horrifying. So that's fifty-two yeah. pounds, so about a third of my body weight um in just <laughs> electronics and electricals for each of us every year. Um, and then looking at the the recycling and reuse rate, what was the recorded global recycling and reuse rate for e-waste by the UN? 20%. Very close with this one. I'll give you the point. It was 17%, um, a little bit higher in the EU um, and, and the UK, around double that. Um, but globally, lots of leakage still. Now, as we've seen from the Environmental Audit Committee's work here in the UK, Stopping e-waste from individuals is really challenging. The systems aren't in place. Um, retailers, especially e-tailers, aren't mandated to take things back. Consumer awareness is is low on what to do. We don't want to pass over our phones or or other devices that have sensitive data. We think, oh, oh they're, they're so expensive. Maybe I'll use them again someday. It's a whole myriad of, of issues to work through. 
But stopping e-waste from businesses is a mission that's perhaps a little further along. It's easier to close the loop in a way. Many businesses providing technologies in a B2B way are seeking to close the loop by offering takebacks or IT as a service models, including Canon, HP Enterprise and our guest for today, Cisco. Um, for anyone listening that is unfamiliar with Cisco, it's a really large business providing IT networking and cybersecurity services and hardware to businesses across the world. And it's the hardware that's of interest for us here today. The company has been hard at work scaling and optimising systems for recapturing equipment that's been used by clients. So it can definitely be remanufactured, refurbished or at least recycled. Katie Schindel, their lead for the circular economy, has worked in Cisco's circular economy team since 2018. So she has a wealth of knowledge on how we can imagine and create circular systems for hardware we use at work. Let's play our third and final interview for this episode, our interview with Katie in full. Hello, Katie. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to hop on our Circular Economy um, Week podcast this, this week. Whereabouts are you dialing in from today? Oh, thanks for having me. I am outside of Boston in the United States. Yeah, so this is our longest distance call for this particular um, pod <laughs> podcast episode. Um, so thank you very much for taking the time. I'm aware there's a lot of circular economy and tech events going on across the US um, recently, as we were mentioning um, off call. So thank you for, for finding the time. Yeah, absolutely. So the logical place to start would be with um, an introduction, um, specifically with an introduction to Cisco's circular economy work and how that work sits um, inside the business and what your role as director of circular economy for the business entails, please. Sure. Circular economy, not necessarily called circular economy, but various aspects of circular economy have existed at Cisco for a long time. We were one of the founding members of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation in 2010. We have a long history of engaging in various types of circular economy initiatives for example related to the design of our products and packaging. There were teams looking at how to make that more sustainable or looking at how we could get uh, customers to, to return more equipment at end of use, offering programs to help facilitate that, selling remanufactured products through our Cisco refresh or taking back and reusing product as part of our service offerings. So those all existed in a variety of, of forms in addition to the other programs that we ran related to other aspects of sustainability. In 2018, kind of the latter part of 2017 into 2018, we wanted to form a holistic strategy that would look at circular economy across a broad range of areas where Cisco has material impacts and can also drive real risk management or opportunity related to the idea of a circular economy. And so we formed that holistic strategy to drive design of our products and packaging, embed circular economy in our value chain, to embed it in the way that we manage the life cycle um, management of our equipment, uh, to put it into our solutions. So how to use technology to help others to achieve their own goals, as well as how we collaborate with others in the broader ecosystem. And I joined Cisco in 2018 to, to lead that newly established team and strategy. And we work with a lot of stakeholders to align on, a, align on the strategy and help to, to drive it forward. Great, well, 2018 was when I joined ED as well. So it must've just been a super exciting time. In the <laughs> 
Um, in fact, we we know it was it was a time when net zero was just getting talked about a little bit more on the cusp of being put in policies and the focus on plastics and circular economy was definitely um, front of mind um, for a lot a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned there that the company does a lot of work on the circular economy in different parts of the value chain. Um, I guess I'd love to start with product return because I imagine that has a significant impact on the business's environmental um, footprint. I understand that the business is working towards full product return, so it'd be great to hear about the practicalities of, of that kind of work. Yeah, product return is one of those things that's really critical to a circular economy and also very challenging for everyone thinking about it. We really have to change our mindsets around what does a product lifetime look like? How do we think about outcome-driven delivery of uh, the, the products and services that different companies put out in the world? Um, from a Cisco perspective, at the World Economic Forum in 2018, our CEO joined forces with a number of different companies uh, as part of the platform for accelerating the circular economy or PACE uh, capital equipment pledge. And, and our pledge, as, as you mentioned, was a commitment to 100% product return upon request at no cost to our customers. We are continuing to work to make progress toward that pledge, both by simplifying the returns process for customers and partners, and also by empowering our sales teams who play a really important role in promoting our take back program and our refresh products with our partners and customers. It really is a system. Everyone has to participate and play their role in that broader system of a circular economy if it's gonna work effectively. Uh, to give a couple examples maybe about how we're doing that. One is the continued expansion of the Send It Back mobile app, which was intended to basically make returns extremely easy, with that being one of the friction points that we know exists. Uh, people won't necessarily do the return if it's not super straightforward for them to initiate it. So we have had that, that app available in the United States for a while. We recently launched it in Europe, so it's now available to both Android and iOS users in all EU countries, as well as the UK and the US. And it basically makes it incredibly easy. So someone has to take a photo and initiate a, an RMA, basically a return. So it initiates the pickup um, and then we come and we take it back and we don't charge them for it. When the products are returned, um, the priority is to maximize circular economy as much as possible. So we wanna pull things up the stack reuse wherever possible. That might be in our service business. That might be through Cisco Refresh, which is certified remanufactured equipment. Might be for internal lab use, for example. Um, and if we can't reuse it, then we'll send it to be recycled or have the, the parts that we can allow to be harvested, harvested. So at the end of the day, we reuse and recycle 99.9% .9 of what's returned to us. That was going to be my next question about what happened after um, the collection, but something I realised that I maybe glossed over is we've dived into this assuming that people know um, who Cisco's customers are and who will be um, returning products and maybe what sort of products they'll have to hand. So do you have an overview of um, yeah who the customer base is and what sort of products you're you're taking back, please? So there's a huge wide range. Um, you know, Cisco makes. Uh, uh, I'm probably being overly simplistic when I say this. Cisco makes technology that helps to power the the internet and the and the infrastructure that connects everybody. So you're talking about things from routers and switches and servers to collaboration devices like a headset or a video unit that you might be using for recording this, you know, this call, for example, this podcast. Um, and 
they exist in all different types of customers, all different types of companies, organizations, governments, uh, nonprofit organizations, schools, hospitals, companies of every kind of way, shape, and form. So it's it's an extremely wide range of organizations globally that would potentially have Cisco equipment. Um, one thing that is important is we use a channel model for our sales. So our partners, our channel partners become an incre incredibly important part of this equation as well. We are thinking about how to engage them in this process. So for example, we recently launched a an environmental sustainability specialization, which recognizes partners for supporting uh, sustainability initiatives for Cisco and also offers a take back incentive, which gives an financial incentive uh, to partners an incremental discount on new products when they commit to returning used hardware back to Cisco. So that's one way in which we're trying to make them part of this equation as well, because it is a really important part of our go to market motion. That makes sense. And and is it only organizations that Cisco um, sells to or could I as a personal customer um, purchase something? Uh, so Cisco is only B2B. Um, so, so in that sense, um, we are really working with businesses, uh, but those businesses could be small to large. I mean, they, they take all different kinds of forms. Mm -hmm. I think that's important when we consider take back, because here in the UK, MPs have been looking at, well, how do we get take back for things like um, Amazon Alexa that do not go into a very closed setting? They go to individual homes and they've been dispatched um on online so i assume that more of a closed setting is a good environment to start um with take back and especially when you can do things like apps and incentives yeah i think it's you know the the we work a lot with different peers in different parts of the industry and and in my background i've worked on on different sides of the equation more on the b2b side although also on the consumer and and more hybrid side and there are different challenges and opportunities involved in that. Um, but yeah, the, I think that whether it's a customer or a consumer, if we say customer sort of an individual, uh, or sorry, consumer as an individual or a customer as a, as a business, um, everyone kind of has to be, has to understand how do we return product? Where can you return product? What steps do they have to go to? And why should I want to participate in this system? And that's what we're really trying to drive toward. That makes sense. There's a big focus on this on in the UK. A lot of co companies finding out about this and thinking, well, why didn't we do this in the first place? Mm -hmm. um, why are offices even allowed to procure hundreds of these things without some way um, to get them back? So I wanted to get your view on if there is a role for maybe policy intervention here to get sustainable IT um, into businesses in in economies like the UK that have a net zero commitment. And I know you mentioned you supply to a lot of the EU as well, which is also working to similar climate goal. Yeah, I think there's kind of two sides of that question I'd, I'd like to address actually. So, so one side of it is more specifically related to policy. We're actively collaborating with other companies and organizations to think about what are the barriers to product take back in various markets. And there's definitely room for incentives that can, from a policy perspective, that can encourage product take back and for policymakers to support the infrastructure for recycling and reuse. To give one example, the policies that have maybe been put in place to help reduce waste or to think about how waste needs to be managed globally don't always support the idea of a circular economy. For example, product that needs to move in order to be repaired or be reused. Um, if it's classified as waste, it limits the movement 
of that, and then we're not able to actually bring it back and, and recirculate it through the circular economy approach. But those rules were put in place for specific reasons. So I think it's an important element just to think about the entire system from a policy perspective and how to connect the dots there. Um, the other thing that I think is a really interesting side of things and, and may not be something that is driven through policy, but is an important element to driving increased take back and reuse is how do we put out new business models or really existing business models that look at the outcome as opposed to the purchase of hardware to facilitate an outcome. So for example, um, we have recently launched something called Cisco GreenPay, which is a payment solution we launched in EMEA. And with that, Cisco Capital, so part of Cisco, retains ownership of the equipment. So the customer is receiving the outcome that that equipment delivers, but it's not owning the equipment. We retain ownership. That makes it easier to get that equipment back when the customer is done using it. It makes it easier for us to upgrade it and to keep it in use. The customer gets a financial incentive. Um, and for those customers, uh, whether they, they could even be governments, right? There's, there's certainly that cross-play uh, there when they're done using it, they return it to us, they get a certificate that it's re-entering the circular economy or the reuse motion. Um, and we're able to also then align incentives better, for example, with our design, and we're doing a lot on the design front to make things easier to upgrade, repair, reuse, recycle. So you kind of have a flow that comes from that focus on how do I get the customer the outcome rather than just how do I deliver the hardware and sell it, and then I have this whole separate motion that has to start when they're done using it. Definitely these service-based models. I've even heard of sustainability as a service. So many mm -hmm. additional um, considerations with, yeah, as you mentioned, not only reverse logistics, but but so much more. Yeah, yeah. Great. And and we, we touched a little bit on the climate bit there. And I did want to come back to that because I got the press release about, um, about Cisco GreenPay um, the other week, really emphasising that the commitment to full product return really supports the business's goal to reach net zero across all scopes by um, 2040. And we mentioned at the beginning of this talk that the formation of the circular economy team within Cisco really helped to mesh that in with other parts of sustainability. Um, so it'd be good to hear a little bit about how the business is linking thinking and targets around resources and emissions, because I feel like this is something um, a lot of companies we work with are just starting out on. Yeah, I, it's so important that they are connected, right? So achieving a circular economy is critical to achieving a net zero future. So everything we're driving at Cisco through our circular economy strategy is inherently linked to our climate goals. And we have been working on making sure that our strategies are interconnected. Realistically, we've actually been driving a variety of climate goals at Cisco for a long time, some of it which have been explicitly part of the work that we do in circular economy, for example, related to our value chain, driving supply chain emissions targets um, has been part of it. But as we made our net zero commitment and as we've been working on really enhancing and growing and accelerating the strategy that we had in place related to climate goals, it's very clear that our circular economy approach, which goes after so many different aspects of what a carbon footprint looks like, um, already had established an important model that we could leverage to achieve our net zero goals as well. So we're integrating those strategies. Um, so we've been talking, for example, about uh, return, take back, product take back. So just to illustrate that, um, 
the more our customers return their equipment to us at end of use, the more we can remanufacture and redeploy it. So then we have fewer emissions, of course, from mining, manufacturing, transportation, all the things involved in making new product. Um, the other pieces I was just talking also about sort of outcome driven um, go to market motions and, and offers. Um, that gives us a lot of flexibility with regards to how do we upgrade things, how do we think about product energy efficiency, for example, um, in how we are transitioning, how much equipment is required to deliver a necessary result, what did that mean for space in a facility, for example, if you have a data center where you're running equipment, how much, um, how efficient can you be in the way that the deployment of that equipment operates so that you reduce emissions during the use, so it kind of goes across really goes across all aspects of that um, life cycle um, that that starts from design. So I mentioned we have a, a, a commitment that 100%, I think I mentioned we have a commitment that 100% of new Cisco products and packaging will incorporate our circular design principles by uh, 2025. And that strategy, that, that focus goes across um, things that impact emissions in the upstream, for example, if you remove unnecessary materials or if you use recycled content uh, in the new product, then you are maybe reducing a movement of a product. So, for example, we had a no paint initiative where removing the paint from uh, this product from it, there was basically a different way to, to show it. So you didn't have to paint it at all. Um, in that process, you remove the paint, which has its own emissions footprint, but you also remove the process where you have to move the thing from one place to another to paint it and then back again. So there's a transportation impact, a manufacturing impact and benefit to that. Um, also thinking about the sustainability of the packaging, making things easier to upgrade, making things easier to repair, reuse, recycle, um, and thinking about the energy consumption of the product during use. So it's really across all aspects of that life cycle, you're reducing the resource impacts and those resources include all of those that create carbon emissions, whether that is um, materials or physical resource related or whether that's energy related. Um, so we're really embedding it in a lot of different aspects uh, across the strategy. And I think that that's one of the strengths of having the different elements of the strategy fit together. It is an education process for people to think through, well, where is this going to have an impact and how do we uh, help to reduce the carbon emissions associated with our overall footprint. Just to give um, a little bit of context for everyone, Cisco's carbon footprint is predominantly in the use of our products because we make long-lived electronic devices that use electricity in their in the use of the product, in the delivery of the outcome. Um, and the second largest category relates to our supply chain. So as we continue to move forward, we really, really have to go through those two as really key parts of our strategy. And those are very much interconnected with the circular economy strategy that we already had in play. Yes, and Katie was last but not least. And a big thank you once again for her time. So we've now come to the end of our circular economy morning routine um matt any any recaps i know you had a great recap on what was in your sessions um at the beginning of of the week looking at how we can yeah focus on multiple agendas but also simplify um the language but any other pressing takeaways that are that are springing up as we we bring this episode to a close yeah, when we were talking about shoes for the second interview, actually something sprang to mind, which I, I wrote, I didn't write it, but I included it in a piece I wrote quite recently. And I think it's quite apt for the current 
cost of living crisis that, that many find themselves in right now. And that is that um, the circular economy isn't just about closing the loop. It's also about extending the longevity of these products and services as they're in place. Um, you know, the 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 fact is, is that those that are kind of closer to the breadline are having to spend more on the same things over and over again. Um, and the, the the phrase that always comes to mind is the um, is the the Terry Pratchett quote from um, Men at Arms when he, he said that a, a man who could afford $50 had a pair of boots that would still be keeping his feet dry in 10 years time, while the poor man who could only afford cheap boots would have to spend hundreds of dollars on boots in the same time and would still have wet feet. And I, I think that's certainly where we are in current, the current climate around fast fashion, for example. What we are, are seeing is that, is that many people can't afford that kind of longevity in their products and services right now so more needs to, to happen not just to embrace the circular economy and make sure when these um, products do reach their end of life that they are they are put back into the loop but actually these that these products have a longer life and that their second life also serves a, a purpose um, as well so the circular economy um, yeah it's, it's, it's not just reuse it's it's kind of responding to the current uh, economic situation that many find themselves in as well. Mm. I've heard that a lot this week as well. And essentially, a, f a few speakers have said that because we go straight for recycling, um, which is actually at the bottom of the R hierarchy, we're losing the benefits of affordability, accessibility and attractiveness, job creation, innovation um, and up upskilling. So we need to think beyond um, recycling and look at how we design our stuff, as you mentioned, how we can repair, refurbish and resell it. Um, and then as UpCircle is doing, if we can upcycle it rather than recycling or downcycling um, as as well. Ultimately, as you say, it's only by making this accessible um, and the norm rather than a nice to have that we'll get to a circular economy rather than just a nice case study. Some final thoughts from Matt and I. Hopefully that's given you all some food for thought. And that's about all we have time for this episode. So a big thank you to everyone for tuning in and a thank you once again to all three of our guest speakers. Um, before Matt and I sign off, I want to recap how you can visit all of the other great content we've been putting on for Circular Economy Week 2022. You can find everything all in one place by visiting our homepage ed.net and clicking events, then Circular Economy Week 2022 in the menu. Once again, that's ed.net click events, then click Circular Economy Week 2022. We've created a tag where you can find free to download reports, exclusive features and interviews, blogs and much more. Um, we're absolutely delighted that we've had such a great range of people taking part in our blogs, interviews, features and event, to name but a few, Mars, L'Oreal, RAP, Zero Waste Scotland, EY, Reconomy and the Ella MacArthur Foundation. So that really is all we have time for on the Sustainable Business Covered podcast for this this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, you can catch up with all past ED podcast episodes on our SoundCloud, Apple, Google and Spotify. You can also subscribe to our podcast on any of these platforms to make sure you never miss a future episode. But for this episode today, it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye.